Hey Five Oaks family, my name is Henry Michael and I am pastor over Student Ministries and I'm coming to you from the comfort of my couch in South St. Paul and we're just going to be going around different areas of my house today as we pray through the scriptures in our new series. Um, it's not a secret, it's not even a shocking statement that the world is getting crazy um, every second of the day. Every minute, every hour, it seems like something is changing. Culture, morality, justice, beauty, and goodness. These are all moving targets in our society. And these things make it harder to reach the next generation with the hope and peace that Jesus brings. Now, this series is centered around a book. It's called Five Things to Pray for Your Kids, Prayers That Change the Next Generation. Now, there's a good portion of our church that has kids, and this is a series that's obviously applicable to them, but I wanna point out the second half of this title, Prayers That Change Things for the Next Generation, meaning this book and this series isn't just for people with kids, it's for grandparents praying for grandchildren. It's for uncles and aunts praying for nephews and nieces. It's for student leaders praying for students and Sunday school leaders praying for their classroom, high school, middle school students praying for their friends kids for their brothers and sisters. This is a series for all of us. And so today we're going to be focusing on one aspect and praying through the scriptures by praying for salvation for the next generation. And to illustrate that point, uh, there's an Australian Christian author and speaker named John Dixon who came to Christ through the faithful witness of an ordinary middle-aged mother Sunday school teacher named Glenda. She would have this group of 15-year-old boys over for lunch on Fridays to talk about Jesus. They would bring their friends, and some of these friends were pretty rough. You know, 15-year-old boys, that's not a shocking statement. And they would be, uh, it would become a very important part of their week as they thirsted to know Jesus more. And Glenda always had an open door for them and treated them like family. Well, later on, one night after midnight, one of his friends got pretty intoxicated and they couldn't go home for fear of getting in trouble. So they were trying to figure out where are they going to bring his friend and Glenda stuck out in their minds. Now, although she had had guests over for a dinner party, she gladly took them in, put him up in one of their beds and spare rooms and gave him clothes and a place to sleep, a place to shower. And the next morning when they came back to pick him up, he was sitting at breakfast with her having a nice chat. Now, Glenda left an impression on them. She no doubt did not like their drinking habits. She was a teetotaler. She talked about not drinking all the time. But her first instinct was not to condemn them, instead to love them more. And this was one of the first times they recognized through her life that Jesus loved sinners. Through her life and through her Friday afternoon chats and this particular in instant, uh, months later, all five of these friends became Christians. Years later, John was uh, starting his own ministry and trying to explore new modes of reaching people. And so his first thought was, I'm going to go to Glenda and ask her what her secret was. Her influence was powerful on their lives, and surely she had some sort of system or program that she could share the gospel effectively. Now, without batting an eye, when asked this question, she said, all I did was pray. That year, a bunch of us who taught scripture decided to make it a year of prayer just to plead with the Lord of the harvest to do something special. And we did. And by the end of the year, you were all confessing Jesus. John, reflecting on this, says, for an activist like me, this was a poignant lesson. In the end, 
The harvest is God's, not mine. It's not my creativity. It's not my skill. It's God's. We just have to bring our ministry to God, cry out to him, and give us success. Now, that's a great story, and many of us would love to be this lady. But as I discovered, maybe many of you in the prayer series, it can be hard to know what to pray for, specifically to find life in prayer. And so through this series, we're going to work through various Bible verses that help us pray for the next generation by using the Word of God as our guide. And we are starting with one of the pillars of our faith. But before we get started, let's pray, then hear, the, hear God's Word through the reading of Scripture. Today's prayer of illumination is based on Romans 3. Please pray the underlying portions with me. Heavenly Father, you offer salvation for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, no matter what we have done. No one is beyond your reach and your grace. By the work of your spirit, reveal your truth as we look to your word. Open our hearts to your calling and to your mission. Remind us to trust in your power to save and transform us as we share the gospel with the world around us. Ephesians 2 8 to 10. For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good work, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's take this one section at a time as we see where these verses show us five powerful ways that we can pray for the next generation. Now, I'm located now in my daughter's pink room, um, and I'm sitting in one of her tiny chairs, and I'll explain why in a minute. But the first point is, be amazed by grace, for it is by grace that you have been saved. Now, grace is one of those theological concepts we could do a whole series on, but to briefly define it, it is the good news that God accepts us, not because we have earned it or deserve it, but it is because he gives it freely at Christ's expense. Now this is one of those radical, life-changing theological concepts, but it's also one of those things that we can pass over in our Christian walk. It can become over-familiar. Eugene Peterson talks about this when he writes, when we first encounter God's saving love, it may well overwhelm us, but over a period of years it becomes a familiar part of the landscape, one religious item among many others. The vocabulary of salvation becomes hackneyed, reduced to the level of a Valentine's card verse. Whenever we are associated with greatness over a long period of time, there is a tendency in us for it to become stale. We lose the language of revelation, our first love. Now we all do this, we all have done this to a certain extent. We start to believe that it is by perfect parenting that we are saved, that is having the right things to say in small group, that we are saved by knowing enough scripture that we are saved, and the list goes on and on and on. Now I'm in my kids' Navy's uh, suspiciously clean room, and when I look around, I see endless arguments because of this suspiciously clean room. The frustration that they don't wanna clean up, and I beat myself over how I parent and how I lose control, and I sometimes believe that there's some sort of magic bullet that can get them to clean and act in a way that's not crazy. And I can base my parenting off all of this. I can view my kids through this lens that days are made or ruined based on an argument with a four and a two-year-old. 
I need this prayer. I need this grace. It's amazing grace that we have been saved, not their ability to clean up, not my ability to hold things together or parent well. That is not what saves us and not what saves them. It's good to pray to be a good parent or to have the right words to say or to know God more. But by praying through this verse, let's pray for the next generation to experience his grace, modeling it's not what they do that earns God's love but God's grace that saves us. I pray that I am so wowed by grace that it seeps into my DNA and that my kids are wowed by grace too. How do we receive this grace? How do we make it real? Well, that's in this next section, in this next verse. We receive grace and we make grace real in our lives by our second point, having opened eyes to the gift of faith. He finishes verse 8 saying, We are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Paul says we receive this grace, unmerited favor at Christ's expense, through faith. Now, grace alone should shock us and overwhelm us. We are saved by grace alone, but it is received through faith alone. This is a wonderful and important gift. We're here in... um, our dining room where a lot of our spiritual conversations and and what we've recognized is as we grow it's really hard to believe in something that we can't necessarily see having spiritual conversations and praying with my four and two-year-old can sometimes feel pointless but every once in a while we get a we get to picture of them trying to understand this unseen reality in our lives my daughter navy after praying once asked us where's god Now, this can be a daunting thing to explain in the nature of God to anyone, let alone a four-year-old, that Jesus, as Paul describes in Colossians 1.15, is the image of the invisible God. It's hard to explain that there is a spiritual nature surrounding us, and we can experience the risen Christ through his spirit anywhere and everywhere, but that takes time. So we pray for the next generation to grow in their faith, to have eyes opened to the spiritual nature of the world around them. We will naturally prepare our kids to be a light through their relationships and their vocation, but we also need to pray from a young age that they experience and accept the gift of faith, a faith built on God's grace towards us. Beyond trying to earn God's favor, but this is important because we need to look at verse 9 to finish off this thought. Salvation is a gift. So what do we do with that? Well, we boast in Christ alone. He says in verse 9, it's not by works so that no one can boast. Our culture is a culture of accomplishment. We work hard and we expect it to be rewarded. We expect people's praise, promotions, financial incentives, and that creeps into our house. I mean, you can see this beautiful artwork that we are boasting of our kids right behind me. And so that can be a really good thing. We want our kids to know that their work matters. But it also can be confusing to our kids when we read passages that salvation is grace alone, not, and through faith alone, not by our works. John Ortberg says the quality of your faith, and you can insert the quality of your work, doesn't save you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. No matter how long you've been a Christian, you know how hard it is not to fall into this mindset of work-based salvation. But that is why the gospel is so radical, so countercultural, so world-changing and weird in our society. 
We don't boast in ourselves. We boast in Christ alone because it's his work that saved us, not ours. We can model that all we want in our homes and in our relationships, but we fervently need to pray that our kids and the next generation grasp this radical nature of the gospel, that they boast in Christ alone. They cannot boast in ourselves, but we can boast in Christ's work because he saved us and he saved us for a good reason. He saved us uh, for a reason, which was to reflect Jesus. And that's our fourth point. It says in verse 10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus. When Holly was pregnant with Hank, I remember walking into the ultrasound to find out the gender, hoping beyond hope and praying that we were having a boy because I wanted to have a boy that I could do all the things that I do. I wanted him to reflect me. Now, when, my, uh, when he grew up and it became evident that he didn't look anything like me, the joke became, I want a boy that looks like me that we can get into stuff together. Obviously, I was kidding. Um, but it's natural and our desire is for our kids to either reflect us or someone that we, we admire. But I think that's setting the bar far too low. Our greatest hope should be that our kids in the next generation reflect Jesus with their friends, in their schools, around their neighborhoods, in their jobs, and in their families. We are God's handiwork. Now, any Christian can hear that, knowing how sinful we are, and think, well, I will be God's handiwork when I start doing this or stop doing this. Or maybe he was talking about somebody else when he was writing this. Or God made a mistake with me. But this points again to the scandalous nature of grace. You and all of your mess are a display of God's grace to the world. God can save a person like you and he can save a person like me and that should humble each and every one of us. To reach the next generation, we need to recognize that we ourselves are God's handiwork and that we are sent out as a light to the world. And whether you have kids or not, you are a light to those around you. Your life at church or small group matters as much as your life at the store or at school. We reflect God's grace in every area of our lives. People are watching. And since we are products of grace, we should pray that we understand grace. Our kids and the next generation understands grace as well so that it transforms how we view people and how they view people. That they view people and pray for that next generation, that they reflect Jesus, that they are God's handiwork to a watching world. This is a total transformation from our old life to our new life in Christ. We have a purpose, a new purpose as God's handiwork. And we see what this new purpose is in the end of these verses. That purpose is to transform us. And that's our last point. Uh, the end of Ephesians 2.10 says that we were created to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, my dad's always prayed for my kids and the next generation that they would be prepared for eternity. But he's since pivoted and, and said that he wants to pray for the next generation to be prepared to live a life on mission. Now, this is a small, but it's a very significant change. This is a prayer for a transformed identity. James 2.17 says that faith by itself without action is a dead faith. We are saved by grace alone. We don't bring anything to the table. We don't deserve it. And we are saved through faith alone. Not just to go to heaven, but to use our gifts and our strengths to be a light in our worlds through good works that God has already prepared for us. And the implication of that is that you were created with a purpose. 
And we need to encourage the next generation in their God-given purpose. And we can do that by making it super complicated, by taking all sorts of personality tests and strength finder tests, which are all good. But we can also look at the things that are already wired in us and in our children and encourage them to grow in those areas. Ask people to point it out in our lives. We can encourage what we see in our kids or the next generation, how they clean up after dinner without arguing how they treat their siblings, how they pray for someone far from God. Pray they become more like Christ through their God-given strengths. God's prepared big and small works for us in our lives, and that's going to prepare us to be servants because we were created to be servants. Now, our culture confuses this. It teaches us in the next generation that good works should make us look good. A total preoccupation of ourselves. What will make us happy? Then do it. What do I want to do with my time, with my effort, with my resources, and how will it benefit me? And that doesn't actually require any sort of sacrifice or reliance on God because we are the center of that world. Now, I want myself, I want my church, and I want the next generation uh, to be known as servants of all. That means doing good works that happen both public and private. That there's nothing too big or too small to give of ourselves. It's not about the individual serving. It's not about me. We look to Jesus as our example. That nothing is too meager, too demeaning, too private, too public. Because nothing in Jesus' ministry was beneath him. When I read this, it leads me to pray uh, to understand what it means to be transformed into a servant like Jesus. It leads me to pray that my kids and the next generation, my peers, and even myself to get out of my own way in order to do the good works that God laid out before us on a daily basis. And it leads me to pray for the church to be a place known for serving all to a watching world and generation. I encourage you guys to pick up this book. Uh, it's an amazing, easy book to read, and it, and it guides you through praying through scripture. It's not a deep, deep theological book that you won't understand. It just helps guide you. Um, so pick up this book. You can get it on Amazon or anywhere that you buy books. As we prepare for communion, I want us to think about the fact that every week we hear, meditate on, and even pray the words of Jesus in communion. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. Luke 22 says, and he took bread gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. His body was broken for you. So I invite you to eat the bread of communion, remembering that. And take the cup and drink it. His blood was shed for you.